Hey, we're back with another episode of the Feed the Ball podcast. This is number 37. I'm Derek Duncan, and today I'm speaking with architect Brian Curley. I've said before that the profession of golf course architecture is a large, small world. Inside it, at least in the U.S., there's room for almost everyone who's willing to find the space that's right for them. The views aren't all the same. Like any business, there's only enough penthouse suites for a fortunate few. But for the most part, there's enough work and enough turnover to keep the most industrious designers busy. Brian Curley certainly occupies a room in this large architectural complex, but he also operates largely, in fact primarily, outside of it. If he's not a stateside penthouse dweller like Tom Doak or Gil Hance, Curley has experience and a resume that any other current architect is probably envious of. For most of the last 20 years, he and design partner Lee Schmidt have built several dozen courses all over the world and have become not just the leading American architects in China and Southeast Asia, but the leading architects there of any nationality. Curley, in particular, has taken the lead on some of the world's most ambitious construction projects, including designing and building most of the 12 golf courses at China's Mission Hills, Shenzhen, and Dongguan sites, and the 10 courses at Mission Hills Haiku, both on Hainan Island. These courses have afforded him a staggering range of artistic and creative license that other designers would spend a career pursuing. Furthermore, these vast, multi-course construction projects were not built piecemeal, but concurrently, in time frames that would warp the mind of American developers and architects. Along these lines, Curley has built golf on an extraordinary variety of sites that range from flat and mundane deserts to steep jungle ravines and across exotic landforms like lava beds, the vertical outcroppings of China's stone forest, barren Mongolian dunescapes, and the mountains of northwest Montana. With his unique design and construction expertise, a bevy of fascinating projects already on the books, and the fertile golf opportunities in China and Southeast Asia, the road ahead for Curley looks endless. Curley met Lee Schmidt in the 1980s working jobs for Pete Dye, and we begin a really fun and buoyant conversation talking about those early days and what the U.S. golf economy looked like then. Brian's a really fun and intelligent guy with great stories, and he's also a practicing musician who plays live shows when he's on location in China, Thailand, at home, or wherever. Well, I think I've adequately pumped this up, but you'll enjoy this one and probably learn a little bit more about the bigger, small, or bigger, big world of architecture. So here we go. Here's me and Brian Curley. Well, we've been trying to set this up for a little while now, but it's it's good to talk to you now that you have two feet firmly planted on U.S. soil. Uh, I I know how much you travel. How many? How often are you out of the country? Oh, um, probably about half the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about this earlier today, and I was it reminded me of this scene in the movie called In the Air with George Clooney, and he he travels so much. His goal is to get to like ten million. Uh, air miles and it's a milestone that only like a few other people have and when he finally gets there they walk out this like platinum or it's a titanium airline like travel card mileage cards made out of like look some kind of metal it's only six other people that have it but you must have some kind of something similar to that some kind of like really sick uh, you know, mileage I don't program. know I, I used to um, you know and I was going back and forth for Mission Hills I was largely sticking to just Cathay or China Airlines. So you kind of build up. But now I'm going a lot of different places and I just get on kayak or orbits or something. And I just, I'm, I'm more concerned about cheaper fares than miles. Right. 
So you don't have like you're not like a brand loyalist. You don't only fly. No, not at all. I mean, I've got you know, and, and the the problem is when you do want to use them, you can never use them. Uh huh. You know, unless you're booking a vacation six months in advance or nine months or a year in advance, you know, and I, I don't know my schedule from week to week. So it's really hard for me to book a trip. And I generally change my tickets once I get there anyway. So so that, you know, I, I, I tend to like a, a just kind of accrue a bunch of miles and then use them to fly people to come see me. So I don't have to go see them. Maybe mileage programs have changed over the years. They, yeah. they are hard to use whenever you try to cash them in. So it's, it's, I've never, that's been like of little concern to me. And it's, and the reality is it's, um, I mean, it's occasionally like, you know, there were a couple of times, I remember one time there was a cafe, I had a bunch of cafe miles and I, um, I hadn't used them because I don't, you know, and I asked my secretary, I said, Linda, I, you know, we should check and see if those aren't expiring. And they were going to expire like in two days or something like, so I was able to book two, you know, business clap class trips that I, if I hadn't thought about it, I would have lost them. Right. But that's, you know, cafe, that's, you know, it's to reach. Yeah. I have, I mean, that's $15,000 worth of tra- travel probably or something. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, the problem is I've got them spread over so many different airlines and, you know, and, and they have these like, you know, your Asia miles or your, you know, uh, all these different programs where they have code share and, um, you know, it's really the best thing is to, I know people who are like insist that they fly Delta or, you know, an airline that, you know, pairs up with Delta and nothing else. And, and it kind of limits your chances too. Cause you, you know, it's one thing if you're just going to Hong Kong or going wherever, but if you're starting to go to, if you're starting to go to, um, kind of oddball places, it doesn't necessarily do it for you. Right. I had, I so, read in an article at some point years ago that you and Lee were kind of alternating your Asia or international travel plans. You'd you'd go for like three weeks and come back for two, and he'd he'd go the opposite direction. Is that still how you two work your international projects? Well, Lee's Lee's kind of out of the, he's Lee's basically retired. He's he's um, going back about three years now. We mm-hmm. kind of worked out this deal where because at least at least twelve years old or so. At least 72, 71, something like that. So um, I just turned 59. So we, we Eternal, just kind of, he just, Eternally just turning 59. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah he, he just wanted, he wanted to kind of start slowing down. So we worked out this deal where, you know, over a three-year period, he would kind of cut back to, you know, like a you know, quarter the, of the pace. And, but then it's right, right when China kind of hit the wall and, and so basically for the next, you know, for that period of time where he was going to slow down, there was really nothing much to do. So I had to go and really start kind of beating the bushes in new countries, new, new, new places. Right. So as of right now, yeah, as of right now, he's, he's, he's retired. So. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back. How did you, when, when and where did you first meet Lee? Uh, we both worked at Landmark. Well, I, 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 uh, I joined Landmark Land Company, uh, pretty much fresh out of school. I was, I was just about a year out of school when, uh, uh, 84 is when I first went to landmark land. It was actually my first day on the job was the day that PJ West was approved. And so the next day we went and barricaded off, shut down Jefferson street, which is the main public street that goes through the middle of the project and diverted all the traffic around the outside of the project. Cause it was, you know, it's a massive project. 
Right. And so that that was my first day on so the job. So PJ West was your first kind of your first big job? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> did that did that skew your view of golf course architecture at all to be, you know, you have your first job be one of the most like notoriously difficult golf courses at least for that era considered the reputationally wise <laughs> of you know your job was to, you know, help build this this monster that the PGA Tour pros even didn't like because they thought it was too difficult. Oh, you know, um, you know, I think you have to look at it like, okay, my background, I, I grew up in Pebble Beach. And, you know, my impression of golf in my, in my, I guess in my, and I really, and I, I went to, I went to school, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which is architecture school and didn't really, you know, it's in architecture programs, you don't have a lot of time to play golf. So, so, you know, my, my kind of exposure to the golf world was really, you know, the courses of the Monterey Peninsula. Um, and, you know, obviously I played other places as well, but as, as far as, you know, what, what I knew to be a golf course were, were those courses there in, in my the course I played the most time on, spent the most time on and worked at as a kid was, was, um, spyglass. So, you know, when you look at my my background or my my exposure to to golf at an early age, it was a lot of, you know, of the premier courses and 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 tougher courses too. So, so, I, you know, when it came time to 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 working on with with Landmark and working at PJ West and those courses, you know, I, sure they're tough and all that, but at the same time they weren't far extreme because I didn't I didn't know. You know, I had never really been exposed to the kind of the, you know, the, the average run of the mill kind of, you know, the dog dog track kind of courses yeah. that you see well, so across the country. So, so you were born spoiled on the Monterey I was Peninsula. Born spoiled in terms of yeah, in terms of what my expectation. You know, it didn't seem at all odd to me that you know, having you know long holes and uphill greens with deep bunkering and or wherever. I mean, that's just that to me. That's just what 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 golf was. You know, I think a lot of people go to see go to play spyglass and they think, you know, it's tough as nails, but that's just kind of where I, you know, knocked it around. So not that it may be the greatest of players, but, but you know what I mean? It was just like, that, that's just kind of what I, what I, what I sense. So, so it, it was, I think, I think more than anything, it was, it was the fact that, that I jumped into kind of the business, so to speak, when that blend of golf and golf community was, was happening. So the idea of creating a golf community more so than a golf course was kind of the marching orders. And then my background is in planning. So that's how I got involved with landmark in the early days was to, was to get involved with these big, huge master plan communities where, you know, golf was, you know, part of the, the scene. Now landmark in those days prided themselves on creating, you know, the best courses possible within that, that playbook of doing a, a, you know, a golf community. So, so, and it's a little bit unlike today because, uh, you know, there was that go-go 80s and into the 90s, you know, and then even when golf was kind of slowing down, but real estate prices were driving more golf construction, and now there's an overbuild of golf courses um, in the U.S. You know, it, that whole, the idea of the golf community was something that, I, it's just, it just kind of, if you look on the kind of the, the timeline in the, in the history of golf, that's kind of when that hit was when, when, when the golf community came along was probably in the early mid eighties. And that's just kind of when I, when I was able to, you know, kind of step into the business as a profession. So, so that's, that's where in my early, certainly in my early days, 
that's what that was um, what drove so much of of the of the work. How do you look back on that period now from a out, sort of from a historical perspective? My contention has been always on this podcast and and elsewhere that you know we'll look back on that period of the eighties and in the nineties as a pretty destructive era of golf course architecture and development because just like you said, golf was no longer the pur- the sole purpose. It was used as an amenity or uh, an accessory to, to for other means. Uh, but you were in, you were involved in that. Not to put any blame on you, you were a young guy, and that's where the work was, and everybody was doing it. But do you share my sentiment on that period in time? Now was was that a an unhealthy period of golf course architecture in America? Um, I think. I, I, well, I don't think there's any yes or no answer to it. It's there. There are a lot of there are a lot of great courses that stand up today that have. They may not have been built as a you know a golf community, but they're they're ha- they're courses that house have homes around them. I think I think what's really the albatross of that the thing what's re- the thing that's really fallen off for for the good is this whole concept of these single golf corridors where where the drive was to create frontage. You know, it's like golf is being used as a tool to create frontage, and every house has to have some frontage, and. Uh, and so, so it's one thing when you build a core golf course and you have homes around it. I mean, Marion has homes around it, and it's you know considered one of the great golf courses. Or you can you can you can Pebble Beach has houses on it for that extent. Sure. So, so it's not. I don't think it's. I don't think it's the. I don't think it's the issue is having homes on a on a golf course. It's it's just the method and, and how it's done. And I think I think a lot of plenty of courses have held up where. They, you know, they're, if, they're, if you're basically double wide corridors and you have good terrain and you have good landscaping, you have, you know, a whole list of things. Uh, there aren't a lot of, I don't, I don't think you'll find too many top tier golf courses that, ha- that would have a number of, you know, what we would call a single corridor kind of golf hole. I mean, there, there certainly are exceptions to the rule. Technically, Pebble Beach probably has a couple, but um that that those those days are kind of gone at which which is good because i think that's that's where that's where that's where the line really was pushed and if you go to that combination it's one thing if you do like for instance like harbor town for instance is mm-hmm. ha, is a tight little corridor i don't i don't you know i bet that course is on less than 150 acres and i think most every hole seems to have houses all over you don't really notice it because it's in the pines yep if you took that same land plan and stuck it in, uh, you know, Las Vegas, you'd get no fighting chance because all you're doing is bombing houses because there's you know, few little bushes aren't going to bat down tree, bat down balls. So, so, so there's a lot of factors that go into it. But I do think that the um, the there's been a push for you know even even when you do have corridors, how you know like that the the corridors have gotten wider and. So I, I, you just, I just don't think you see too much of that going on, except for in, you know, these retirement communities where, again, everybody kind of is, is looking to create, uh, you know, the residential frontage. Not that there's that many of those going on either. So, so I think there are a lot of factors involved, and there are always exceptions to the rule. But what's happening and, – and, and to, to, you know, when we started stepping into the whole Asia market, you know, the good thing there is you – and, and even today, I mean, the majority of work that's being done, even if there is a development aspect or a component or a housing component or, villi- you know, whatever it is, you're still dealing largely with 
with something that you would consider, you know, more of a core golf course, which is kind of the, you know, the golf club of old. But there's other factors too, because when when in those early '80s, there there was there there was a a business write-off to having your second home and having and doing, but and and that's gone away too, and that's something that doesn't get talked up too much is that there was also a write-off that went on with, with, with buying your second home that doesn't necessarily exist to the same extent today. And then a lot of clubs, you can't do business. And so there are a lot of factors that go into what's affected the housing community. But it's nice to see golf go back to essentially just that, that core golf mentality. And, but really, that's where it's been pretty much all along with the majority of work that we've had in Asia. You know, Mission Hills, I guess, would you know would have – certainly have some exceptions to that where there it's it's much more of a development um but nothing like uh nothing like you know when i when i first got involved it was you know we were just stamping out golf courses and you know in palm springs and and you know it, that was the the marching orders was you know how much frontage can we get so but right. that, those days certainly changed yeah Landmark during that period was known for working with closely with Pete Dye on quite a few projects, and then but when we think about Pete Dye and how he builds golf courses, it, we think of him in the design build mold where he's out and he's developing in the field and he's got his crew of like you know local laborers and young guys working for him, and you don't think of him in conjunction with working hand in hand with a big developer. How did that relationship work when you were there? What was Pete Dye responsible for? And what was he doing, and what were what were you doing during that time period as well? Yeah, well, Pete, you know, Pete really got his break because of Landmark. Um, Ernie Vosser and, and and Joe Walser, who were the two golf pros who who started Landmark Land Company, along with a banker uh, named Jerry Barton, who was the, the the money behind the whole thing. They they had the idea of you know we need we need to create these golf communities, but we don't want you know just average golf courses we want really nice golf courses and they had they had they kind of give the gave pete his first break on a deal in uh i think it was in oklahoma one of the first ones that they worked on and it kind of mushroomed from one thing so pete kind of became their go-to guy because he was creating really you know difficult golf courses for the era yeah and they liked that because they didn't even though they saw the golf community as the moneymaker, but they wanted to focus on, on good quality golf. And there's some funny stories along the way, some odd little, you know, right time, right place kind of things that, that, that happened that made the whole thing kind of come together. But when it came time to the, the, the big push was to do PJ West. It's, it's a, it's kind of funny, funny. There's a few kind of funny stories along with the early days of PJ West. One was, um, that at, the time landmark was tied in to do pj west with a company called sunrise and sunrise had had done basically every other golf community in the palm springs area you can name them all and they're all ted robinson courses you know single corridor a lot of them and yeah, you know lovely stuff funny so they said <laughs> so they came in and said listen you know go on to sunrise they said, well, yeah we want to work with you but we don't want to use ted because we want to, uh, we want to raise the standards of our golf and we want to use pete Dye." and so they basically paid ted's contract to go away and and um, and to bring Pete in, and then <laughs> Pete was, um, uh, you know, the and the the stadium course was that's that's what first I started working with Pete, and so the stadium course was uh, by by Palm Springs standards, it's a core golf course. I mean, it's a very big acreage, and it's largely um, 
not only is it double wide corridors, but it's got big, big spectator mounds, you know, in between. So it's a very large acreage course. It, it plays as much of a core golf course as you ever going to really come across in Palm Springs. You know, we've done a few that are st- strictly core, but, but for the most part in these housing developments, it's got a lot of elbow room. So, and Pete was really insistent on, you know, a having the elbow room and Pete's big thing was to not have housing kind of behind the green. He wanted to look down. He didn't mind houses flanking the holes as long as the setbacks were fine, but he didn't want to stare down the back of it and not see the pin because it blends in with the stucco at the house behind the hole. Right. So he was, he was, he understood who, you know, who butters the bread and who pays the bills but but at the same time, he was he was pretty insistent on trying to keep a certain you know standard associated with the quality of golf. And then what happened? And I worked on a number of courses with Pete during that period, and it was it was you know it was it was a hoot to work with Pete during that time. But you know we had a lot of different courses that that were you know Pete died designs. But Pete either fell in love with the project, like a stadium course or a Kiowa. Or he just really, you know, he, he was like, yeah, I don't really care what you guys do. You just, you know, I'll show up if I have to kind of a thing. Because, you know, he, he just knew that this was, you know, this was, this was not going to. Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't think that Pete was ever in that position where he, he was doing it so, so much for the money. It wasn't like, oh, I'll take this job because I want to get a check. In fact, I remember times where the accountant would walk in the room and say, Pete, you know, we, we sent you a check for $300,000 a couple months ago and you never cashed it. And, you know. That kind of a thing. I mean, why, never, why is that not surprising to hear that? Yeah, you know, Pete was never. Well, you know, he used to walk straight off the site, right, step right into the hot tub to, to you know, rather than you know, with all his mud all over his clothes, and they find <laughs> the Pete. You know, we're just going to give you new clothes. You just, you just, you take off the clothes up because you're clogging up our hot tub. You know, <laughs> so. But, but during that period, um, I, I think that Pete did those jobs out of out of just this kind of loyalty to Ernie and Joe because they had get really they had really had given him his his break early on in his career and he felt that uh, you know whatever whatever these guys wanted to do and he would go along and you know and the and the good ones would come along with some of the average ones and and, and then and along the way came you know Kiowa which was I was fortunate to work on early in, in the early days with him too so. So were you were you in you know in the field with him developing things or when he wasn't there in charge of kind of executing the die model at PGA West? Oh yeah yeah yeah. Um, in fact, um, the yeah the earlier in the earlier days. Well, uh, okay, Pete. You know the joke always with Pete is Pete can't draw his own breath. You know Pete Pete's not one to come out and whip out a grading plan for you. You know. Pete, Pete would scratch on a, you know, kind of like these little chicken scratch scratch drawings that I would have to kind of interpret and convert into a grading plan. And Lee was kind of the same way too, a little bit more polished. Um, but Lee, I, I kind of taught Lee how to do how to do grading plans. Lee would do kind of these areas, and he would call out. It looked like circles, like you know, this area was a fifty-four, this was a fifty-two, this was a fifty, you know. And rather than counter like tying them all together, and I'd have to kind of tie the stuff all together between the two of them, you know, and try to work something out, and then. You know, Pete didn't pay much attention to plans anyway, but you need to get a plan to get, you know, to get this big dirt move going in there and get things rolling anyway. So, so you have to have some sort of starting point. Right. But then from there, Pete would, Pete was out there just on site, uh, you know, relentlessly. And, and Lee was basically on site every day. And I was kind of more in the office at that, at that point in time. And then in later years, I would spend more time, uh, with, with both of them out on, on different, different, 
um, you know, more on site. But he, but even that, Pete, Pete was never one to sit down at a plan and work some, work something out on a drawing. I mean, mm-hmm. he was was he's definitely a builder, not a drawer. You know? Do you have any memories of of Tom Doak on that project? I thought I think I read that he was at PJ West for a short time. Well, I remember, I remember Pete. We uh, well, I remember first met Tom. We had a. It was funny. The the project um, had uh, it's actually it's it's the property that is now Silver Rock, which is the Palmer Course out there where the tour played a little bit there. It was one of the because you know, this was vast open lands. I mean, La Quinta and Pisa, it was just nothing but just you know open flat land. And there was the, there was an old being there called the Amundsen House. The Amundsens were a big part and Amundsen land, and so the, the, they they kept their prize bowl. In this air conditioned, they called it the Bull Barn. So that's what that was our office. Lee and I, and you know, a couple other designers and architects, and we. It was an old stable that we converted. So, did you say bull? Their prized bull. Bull, yeah, like thousands <laughs> of dollars they paid for this bull, and the bull was kept in, and it was an air conditioned bull barn. And what, so what did the bull got, do? Did he just they just looked at him, or did he have, did he have a job? <laughs> he was the one. No, he he went to town, and you know. On all these other bulls, that, or all these these other cow, cattle out on okay. the. Okay. All right. Yeah. It was a combination of I don't know how much of livestock there was at the time. There was a lot of just alfalfa fields and things, but so I remember. So we had this little low ceiling little you know thing, the bull barn. We called the bull barn, and that's when I first met Tom. He came in and he had planned. I think he'd kind of worked out with Pete, um, but I don't know how much of that ever made its way into because i know from that point forward you know we we worked out a grading plan and and you know the plans that got submitted i think from might have resembled to that to some extent how much it is i don't remember exactly because i know that he had he had had worked out some stuff with i think early on but then from that point forward i don't remember seeing i don't remember tom being really much involved from from then on and i i know that from that point forward lee did another you know whole another you know set of plans that uh, we had to kind of, we had to submit and cause you still got it, you know, obviously you need an engineered plan when you got, you know, a bunch of equipment rolling all over the place and yeah, and whatnot. So, so yeah, but that was, that was, that was, you know, that was, boy, that was you know, a long time ago. So. Sure, yeah. Well, what do you remember about the ocean course? Um, you know, as far as getting that up and off the ground and then I know the you know, hurricane came through at one point. Or was, yeah, well, well, yeah, Pete and I, well, it was, okay. Here's the funny story on that one. Is okay. The Ryder Cup, obviously, you know, mass. I went to I went to Paris this year, and there's sixty thousand people. You know, you're right. Okay. In 1980, you know, the before 1984, whenever it would you know, probably 82 or something, Landmark had made a deal to host the Ryder Cup. But of course, the Ryder Cup was a non-event. It was probably they probably paid twenty bucks for it. You know, it was like no one wanted anything to do because it was just the U.S. would just steamroll UK, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they did the thing where they brought in Europe and all of a sudden it became an event. Well, it was right about at that, that same time. Oh, so, okay, so, so Landmark was going to host, get this, they were going to host the Ryder Cup in, what, what year was it in Kiowa? In 80, in 91. 91. Okay, so the 91 Ryder Cup was going to be at PJ West, La Quinta. Oh, wow. <laughs> in, you know, potentially 115 degree weather. Yeah. And and when they inked the deal, no one really cared because it was a non-event, right? Well, all of a sudden, not only did the U.S. lose, but they lost on American soil and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, you know, the 91 Ryder Cup became a big, big, big to-do. And, well, so going into that, 
the PGA then comes to Lambert and they say, you know, we want to we want to move the Ryder Cup to East Coast for East Coast time, and you know we. We don't want to have it there. And, and Lambert put the foot down and said, no, 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 we've got a deal. It's going to be at PJ West. We want to promote this project. We want to sell memberships. We want to sell houses. And it was a big tussle. And then they finally said, well, do you have anything on the East Coast? And they said, well, we just bought this place called Kiowa. And they said, well, we know that, but we don't know if those courses are you know, capable of ha- handling the Ryder Cup. And they said, well, yeah, but we're going to do this other course. We're going to, you know, the ocean course had not been built yet. It was just raw land. And they said, we're going to do this course. We're going to do a peat dye course. And, you know, we're going to start it soon. And they said, well, can you get it done for the Ryder Cup? And so long story, but Pete built that. And we, you know, we went and built that golf course and it opened, you know, basically the week before the Ryder Cup. Yeah, I remember and, that. And then the, the story I always heard, and I think this is probably myth or urban legend, was when Hurricane Hugo came through, it allegedly demolished much of the construction on the site. Cause I think that hurricane was in 89 or 90, one yeah, of those two uh, years. And you know, the store, the legend was that, well, you know, Charleston and the, the Carolinas are in chaos and bridges are, are wiped out. Nobody could get anywhere. Pete went out and basically like rebuilt everything on a tractor by himself, maybe <laughs> in, in ways that he wasn't allowed to to build before for maybe environmental regulations or something you know but he used the opportunity to go out there and kind of reshape the golf course is and i asked him about that once and he kind of changed he didn't really answer the question but what do you remember (laughs) that or do you have any recollection yeah well i mean there's a lot of truth to that and it i guess going back into it is prior to starting you know the the site was really well documented in terms of you know, there's the primary dunes and secondary dunes, and there's these these different levels of of water levels that depended on how how water flowed through. I mean, it was it was a pretty well um, documented property as far as topo and environmental. You know, so so you know, it, it wasn't as if you were dealing on a on a property that no one had really stepped foot on because it was, it you know it 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 some you know someone had really gone through it and documented what was there. So. But yes, when when the when 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 the when that whole hurricane came through, I think Pete seized he saw that as an opportunity to make some adjustments that he had wanted to do, but were he was kind of handcuffed on, uh, with the idea being that no one's ever going to really notice because they're worried about t- you know fixing fixing towns and bridges and other things, and they're not going to worry about whether you know this there was a little minor change to this property out here, and. Uh, so yeah, it, it, um, it's, it's, I, I just know I have a really good friend of mine who was, was working for Landmark at the time and he, he really had to go back and, and, uh, he, he was instrumental in documenting kind of what was there, what happened, what was, you know, tolerable, what went hit and, and he worked with, with powers that be to, to in effect kind of save the course. And yeah, it was, it was, uh, um, there was, yeah, it was like the second storm that came through was the one that, that, uh, was, you know, Pete had kind of created <laughs> in, in his, yeah. in his adjustments along the way. But in the big picture, you know, it's hard to, you know, I, I just think that a, a lot of times, you know, a lot of, a lot of government officials in that, and they, they take it more of a personal affront than a large, picture environmental problem if that makes sense you know it's like well you can't do that because you know you're you did that without my approval and i'm gonna throw the book at you kind of a thing so 
but it did it did take it definitely took some massaging to to salvage the course and and you know i don't know the details of it all but i know that there were some points there where there it was touch and go as to what was going to be able to you know remain or get fixed so to speak yeah so going back to uh to when you first met lee did you just have an instant friendship with him did you guys just hit it off the first time you you were on a job together yeah, because well, Lee was Lee was um, I got I was brought in I I joined I I, I joined Landmark um, really you know in the in the kind of the architectural end of things the art, the land planning things and and Lee was the construction guy Lee really wasn't a, a designer so to speak because we had a, a an office of architects and engineers and because we we you know we we designed and built in house you know you know a lot of, a lot of developers will hire you know. Tom Fazio to come do the course and hire landscapes and limited to come build their course. And they stay kind of at arm's length, but we had landmark had, you know, at one time had like 2000 employees between, you know, all their staff at different, you know, at La Quinta at the hotels or whatever, but also all their in-house development people. We had a, we had a bunch of people. So we had in-house architecture and construction and everything. So Lee was heading up the golf construction in and Lee had been pulled off, you know, Lee worked for Pete um, in the early days, and as as Landmark was doing more more jobs, they said, "Pete, we 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 need one of your guys here full time." And, and so it worked out that they just moved Lee to the desert. And so Lee was the Lee was the in charge of golf construction for Landmark, and I was in the in the design end. And so we worked together back and forth, you know, on an, on a fairly you know daily basis because he would need plans adjusted here and there. So I was that I got thrown into that fire early on. So but. We didn't really. St- I didn't really get into the golf construction aspect of it on a on a on a daily basis for probably uh, you know another another couple of years. I was certainly you know in the fold, and I'd go out there while things were going on. But I had other things to do. Whereas Lee, that was 100 percent his effort. And then what happened is we 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 got to doing where we started doing what we called landmark signature courses, where rather than having designers come in, we said, well, why, why are we hiring other people? Why don't we just do these things ourselves? So that's when Lee and I really started working more and more hand in hand. And we did a few deals with that kind of a, that kind of a setup. And so that's, that's where we spent a lot more, a lot more time working together, but we worked well together because, you know, I was more plan based, drawing based, and he was much more construction agronomy, Base coming from the more from the design or from the construction superintendent end, and I can, I was coming much more from the design end. So, so we we worked well together. I learned a lot from him, and, and I I taught him you know a lot how to how to you know put ideas down on plans. So did did so, those different backgrounds have an effect on how you would design golf courses? Did you approach it from different angles, or was everything a synthesis of your two ideas? No, I don't. I don't know if there were ever two different, you know, points of view. I don't. I don't know. I can't remember ever really having any big conflicts in terms of what we wanted to do from a design point of view. You got to remember that, you know, a lot. You know, I think that, I think outsiders looking in think that golf architects are all handed abandoned dunes property, and they spend, you know, seven days walking the property and they decide where to put tees and greens and where to scratch out a bunker here and there. And, you know, those. Those those kind of jobs, those kind of opportunities, are pretty few and far between, and they were certainly not very prevalent at that point in time. You know, this was a period of time where you were you were given a property, and you would have to just mass grade it, in, because there was 
you know, a development component along with it, and that development component need to be engineered. A lot of times you were lowering grades in your golf corridors, your golf areas, to raise your pads, either for views or, or to just to, to make it function, make it work, make water power sewer. I mean, there's there's just a whole lot of a lot of coordination that goes on when you're dealing with a, a, a development component along with the golf, as opposed to just going out and um, building just a golf course. That's kind of changed for, for me. And, you know, in these recent years, you know, they're, they're, especially in Vietnam, you know, it's that whole having to coordinate the development end is becoming kind of less of a, and it's nice and working on, you know, great sandy sites where you just kind of wave your arms around. But I think that, I think a lot of people critique golf courses in the respect of well, why, why is that there? Or why is that there? And, and you have to understand that a lot of times these, these, these golf communities that were created that period of time in the 80s and 90s, you know, you, you're completely transforming properties. And so you have, you, you know, you have big dirt, dirt moves. And, and the emphasis a lot of times is on, um, was how to create the best golf prop possible while still honoring the overriding goal. And what, what paid the bills was, was being able to sell real estate. You know, if it weren't for the fact we're selling real estate, you would never seen a lot of these golf courses built at that period because they weren't necessarily building to meet the demand of golfers. They were meeting the demand of, of homeowners who were going to become golfers, if that makes sense. And obviously that happened to a certain extent. It, it happened for a, a long period of time in, in Palm Springs, you know, it pop a place would pop up and it, and it sell out and you move one section of land down the road and then another one would pop up. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, that, that only, <laughs> that only, you know, what goes up must come down at some point, at some point it evens up and, and, you know, that demand that tips off. And what really hurt the housing business or the golf business in that respect, this overbuild was that even when golf, when rounds dropped, they kept building, um, they kept building homes because rates were cheap and homes, real estate was, was hot. And so, you know, a lot of courses got built when there was really no hope of ever filling them with golfers. Absolutely. Yeah. But in what you're talking about, the way you manufacture a course, you, you grade the entire side and you have all these other uh, aspects to consider. That's real architecture though. You're building everything. It's the, well, you know, it, that's what I've, I, and this is, this is by, this is not at all any kind of knock on, Minimal. I know there's such an attention to minimalism and minimal, that whole minimalism between Tom and, and Bill and Gil. And, you know, that's great when someone gives you band and tunes and someone gives you sand hills, and someone gives you, you know, sure, that's what you're going to do. But when someone gives you, you know, a site like Mission Hills, you couldn't even walk the property. I mean, you would have to walk on all fours up and down the sides of these hills, basically. And, you know, not one, ex not one golf hole exists on where, where there's, you know, a heap of golf holes right now. Not one of those golf holes, everything is created. So there's, there's kind of, there's kinds of, to me, there's two kinds of architecture. There's the architecture where you go out and find holes and there's the architecture where you go out and create holes. And I think that the, there's a, the, you know, if, if you get the site and if someone gives you band of dunes, you're going to go find golf holes. You're not going to go move, you know, a, a heap of dirt. But there are times where you have to, and you know, uh, and I think that what what the, the problem with where where those golf courses don't get the attention early on, because a lot of times when you go in there and you're and you're creating, and you're creating not just your turf areas but your non-turf areas, which is what you know, because you're creating a landscape, 
And, you know, the course will look good 10 years down the road, but when it first opens and you've got small trees and small this and small that, it doesn't have the impact that it does down the road. But by then, people have moved on to the next project. And no one ever goes back and revisits, you know, a site 10 years later and say, wow, when this place opened, the trees are real small. Now that's big, it looks like a big mature course. And had it looked like this the day it opened, this thing would have had, you know, a lot more claim. But it doesn't really work that way. And so you just kind of go project to project. And, you know, occasionally we'd come across you know, a, a, a great natural site, but not very often, you know, we probably of all architects ever worked in this business. I've probably had to work with more, you know, less than spectacular, you know, sides of hills and, and, you know, tops of hills and floodplains and, you know, rock. And, you know, it's, it's just now that, it, you know, you know, I'm coming across these great sandy sites and it's an entirely different world. Okay. And, and we'll get to that in, in a minute here. Okay, let's jump in real quick right here and get this out of the way. Please go to iTunes or your other podcast provider and give the show a rating. It motivates me to keep going strong and get these interviews up and out, and I really appreciate your support. Uh, And by the way, thank you to those on iTunes who gave me a one-star rating. Pretty sure I know who you are, but but hey, you know what? That's your opinion. That's okay. I I even appreciate that feedback. So go ahead and please go to iTunes or wherever else and give the show a star rating. You can also bump and promote the show on Twitter or Instagram or other forms of social media. Let me know you're out there, and back to Brian Curley. You know, you said that you grew up on the Monterey Peninsula and you played Spyglass and some of these other courses that were not easy golf courses. You know, they had a little bit of a reputation for being difficult. Then you got to work with Landmark, PGA West, working with Pete Dye. So, I mean, you're indoctrinated into this kind of viewpoint or the specific lane of of golf and and it's a little bit difficult and it's a little bit extreme in places. There's definitely the Pete Dye school of architecture. At what point, if at all, were you exposed to like a different kind of softening of a golf course or like a different avenue? Or this is another way of asking you, has your views on design and architecture and the way you practice it, has that evolved from those early impressions that you went through? Oh, sure. But I think you have to understand that there's a, you know, there's at the time at the the marketplace in, well, I'll just say in, you know, in Palm Springs in the desert where so much of our work was early on, you know, as these new golf communities popped up, you know, again, there were a lot of these Ted Robinson, you know, with, with you know, kind of benign courses. They were pretty and they had waterfalls. They had and, fountains, and yeah. Flowers and palm trees and, and then, and, and that sold houses. But then golfers were saying, wait a second, I, you know, I want, I want something tougher. I want something this time. And so, so Landmark was on this kick of, you know, trying to, to and, you know, and then, you know, Nicholas came in and did a couple of tough courses and, you know, two things, a lot of golfers. They wanted difficulty, but they didn't want to have lakes everywhere because, you know, it's funny, you know, lakes protect, it's a great way to protect your housing areas is to put water everywhere because people play away from it. But at the same time, nobody wants to play Florida golf in the desert. It doesn't make any sense. So, but, but I think that, uh, a lot of, a lot of players and, and I'll say a lot of players, I don't mean the average player. I just think a lot of the more vocal players were, influential on what was considered a you know a good golf course and the better the golf course the more you sold that you know the same house you took you take the same house if you put it on an average golf course it sells for a half a million you put it on a good golf course and it sells for 750 you know so so they started figuring out that the better the product was golf wise the better that it, it folded into the value the overall value of the project so 
But I, what I was saying is I think at that period of time, then everybody kind of saw that, hey, Landmark's creating these tougher golf courses. And I think it rolled into, you know, just kind of across the country. You saw more and more that was it was an influence that and not necessarily good influence, but there was an influence of trying to kind of out tough each other. And then the pendulum swung kind of back from there. And then certainly Fazio got a lot of attention for creating um, not, you know, not necessarily emphasis was was on big bold landscapes and beautiful courses that did both it sold it not only did it you know sell the house sold the membership but also appeased that guy that could afford a high-end membership who isn't a good player because he, he spends his time making money not playing golf so as opposed to courses when courses got too tough sure it appealed to the really good player but that was the guy that you know that wasn't wasn't uh hauling in a, a big salary and wasn't paying as much. So I think they started doing the math there and decided that, you know, that maybe things had gotten too tough That's in, in, the, in the business in general. So, I, I mean, I was never any kind of big advocate of trying to, to create tough. That's just what was being done, and that's what, what was sold, and, and it sold memberships, and it sold, it sold homes. And you, if you look back in those, those early days of, P.J. West and La Quinta and, you know, all those projects around there, um, that was kind of the, the marching orders, I think, were to a large extent was to to create something that is certainly is visually demanding. And, you know, the more demanding the golf course, the the more highly regarded the golf course, the the higher values there were in, in the overall development. I think it was just kind of it kind of went down that chain. Mm-hmm. I remember talking to uh, guys in, in your profession in the early 2000s, and a lot of them were struggling with whether they saw that they pretty much peaked. The profession and the, the construction side of it had peaked. Things were going to wind down, and the business was going to contract. And a lot of them struggled with the decision of whether they should try to take their stretch their practice into Asia uh, and, and other markets, because I think everybody knew that's where the business is, was going. And then, of course, when the uh, recession arrived in like 2007, 2008, 2009, the, the construction side of it really bottomed out. And that probably forced more people to consider that. You were already over there in you and Lee were in there, what, in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, you were already in the, the Chinese market. Was was that a difficult decision for you to knowing that what it was this toll it was going to take on your lives and 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 how how much how difficult that was going to be to to transfer your business overseas? Uh, no, not at all. And I, there's two factors there. One is my wife. Uh, my wife has or her her father was is a is a commercial developer, and he actually in the Palm Springs area, basically every other shopping center you see in the Palm Springs area, he built it. So I would have these discussions with him when, in those early landmark days, and he would talk about the cycles of, of real estate. And, you know, I'm there thinking, I'm in the golf business, but, you know, he made a point, you're really in the real estate business, you know, and it's going to go in cycles, and, and you can only do so much, you can only build so many for so long. And so when the opportunity to work in Asia came up, you know, China in particular, I just remember telling Lee, we, that's where we need to, we need to, we need to put a full court press on this. We can't, we can't just, you know, have a job come along, go over like some architects did. They do a set of plans and they say, I'll see you, you know, when it's done kind of a thing and just rely on it, whoever it was building. So 
you know, I just said, you know, and we need to. So in, in, in the early in the earlier years, it, you know, it was a lot of just travel back and forth. And finally, I said, you know, we need we need to have an office here because because that we need we need we need really 24 hour service because not only was there a lot going on, but it was it was like we need it tomorrow. You know, we need plans now because it was it, they they had, there was just basically kind of an impatience and obviously you know not the same kind of approval process that would go on here. So you'd meet someone and you know I, I mean I had deals where I, you know we'd talk about a job on Thursday and we'd start on Monday. And so that's wild. You know you don't you don't that's just hard to believe. <laughs> well, you know well and as an example, I remember that actually there's Mission Hills we had um we had done uh, some work there. It was the, it was the, the we had done the Faldo course, and there was some excess land. Or oh, when we first did the Faldo course, they wanted to do, I don't remember it was twenty seven or thirty six holes. I said no, no, no. That's there's not enough land, and it's too mountainous, and it's you know let's just do a really really good eighteen and make it the the flagship course, the stadium course that hold events. So they did, and they saved some hillsides, and then they wanted to expand, and what became the Pete Dye course, but. And they had added some land on by then. And so some Ken, he, the chairman, chairman's son at the time, Ken's now, Ken, she's now the chairman, but he had, he, I, I showed up on a Thursday and he had, he wasn't even there. He had a list. He says, go look out and see if there's enough land to add to 18 holes. So I went out and I came back. I said, yeah, if we do this, 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 and this, so we can get it done. And, and I took him out there. This is on a Thursday, Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon, I took him out there. We met with the contractor the next day and Monday they were, they were whittling the hill down. Wow. So first of all, what was your, what was your first project in China uh, and when was it? Oh, okay. So they had the, they had the world cup there in 90. Uh, I should know 90. No, no, no. That was us open 94. Oh, uh, whatever. The, when they first had the world cup that Fred and, Davis one at world well, the, the the Nicholas course had just opened they just opened the highway and in fact little trivia it's the first uncensored live TV ever out of China was the World Cup at Mission Hills and um, so following that the Bert Schreiber who ran the World Cup came to Landmark and he said you know these guys have done a course they want to do more so I went over there and uh, and just you know we got going on what you know, just brutal land I mean just you know, massive, you know, 30, 40 meter cuts and fills and things. So it was the, it, what we started the, it was the Ozaki course in the, in the Faldo course. And, uh, and then just, so th those were the first two and this was at Mission Hills and Shenzhen. Yeah. And the, what they had, they had, they had a, they had the Nicholas world cup course. They also had a Nicholas course. They called the Valley course that became, we added more land and it became the L's and the VJ course because we kind of saved some holes and added on more holes and, you know, turned, turned that into 36. So yeah, that, that, that first thing was the, the five, five course complex there. And then, um, in about late, right around, right around 2000, somewhere around in there is when we started the, the, Mission, Mission Hills is it's it's the twelve courses. There's three different clubhouses. As the crow flies, if you look at them on Google Earth, they're kind of all connected, but but they're basically yeah. kind of all lined up. But it's not one contiguous project. Project. There's a little bit of land in between. But 
Mm-hmm. We did the Dongguan courses, which is the the, the where the where the Norman and the Lothabel and Annika and and uh, the others are, and but that was I I we were looking at land, you know I'd go out on occasion. They said we might do a project here, we might do one here one time, and and then that that turned into, you know, how soon can you start kind of a thing too, and that's where we built five courses, moved. 30 million cubic meters of land of dirt and probably, you know, we built, built, done five courses in, I think, 14 months on just a brutal, brutal, brutal site. And uh, so we had, we had 2000 pieces of equipment, 2000, we had seven, 750 excavators and 1200 plus dump trucks going 24 hours a day, two 10 hour shifts. So I'm sure this is a ridiculous question, but was there, is there ever a discussion of, of budget? Uh, like, well, this is happening. I mean, is that a concern or, a, you know, an issue at all? No, there was, it was never, it, I, I don't think there was never a budget discussion. In other words, like, here's what you get to spend. That never happened. No, but that they always had had trust that, you know, between myself and, you know, and Lee wasn't really much, much involved with mission Hills at all, but I was doing all the mission stuff and Lee was on other things, but, and then we're also working with Martin Moore, who's, who's got his company flagship construction manager. So between Martin and myself, you know, they always had a hundred percent confidence that we would a, you know, not, not spend stupid money, I guess is the best way to put it. You know, we would spend money, but we would do it wisely. But number one was we meet their schedule. And I think in looking back, I think the chairman had, he had wind of this upcoming, you know, ban on, on courses and wanted to get things tucked in and done and put to bed before any of those dates ever hit. So it was the, and in dealing with Mission Hills, it was always much more of a concern about time frame than ever about, you know, any particular budget. That doesn't mean that at times, you know, we would, we would, you know, we would discuss to make sure, you know, whether we wanted to do, and and that had really probably had that more to do with landscaping than anything else, you know, whether we would get, bring in big, bigger material or smaller material. But, you know, in that part of the world, mm-hmm. you, you can, you can plant small material and you got to jump out of the way because it grows so fast. So that was never really a massive issue. So, so you're 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 essentially uh, designing these golf courses simultaneously and building them, and you know that they're going to. Do you know at this point that they're going to be named after these marketable players? Um, at the well, at the time that well, it went in stages. When we did Dongguan, we we started the, the Dongguan courses. We started um, well before we had any kind of idea what names they wanted to put on them. And I remember that we, we in fact, we were so, st- we had started, and, and the five courses there, there's kind of like three together, then two together. And what what is the Leadport better course was a bunch of cut that filled the valleys that is now the Norman course. But I remember we were, we were it was fine. And, you know, okay, just this will blow your mind if anybody who knows this business. Like, like there are courses where if you moved 300,000 cubic meters on the entire golf course in the two years that it takes to build a golf course, that's probably, that's like a, that's a, that's a, that's not an out of the average number. I mean, that's, that's a dirt move. That's on, on, a, mm-hmm. on your kind of your average kind of rolling site. You, you move 300,000 meters. That's, 
That's yep. well beyond minimalism, by the way, too. I mean, that's a good dirt move, right? We had 300,000 cubic meter days. Days. That just gives you an idea of the amount of, of you know, <laughs> in one day. Yeah. One day. We, we had a 300, we had a, I remember, I was talking to Martin about this recently. We had a 320,000 cubic meter day. So, you can imagine how, you know, how fast things are going. So, the point is, like, on that one, the, you know, the, we were working the letter, we're led better site and, and what was to be the norm. They'd made a deal with Norman. And then Norman, they said, well, Norman says, says, okay, I'll do it, but I get first pick of which, which course I want. So, you know, I sent everything I had, which was fairly rudimentary, which is a whole other story because the topo was terrible. And um, so you basically drawn whole sketches for different for several different 18 hole courses across this landscape that you have a, a port topography map for. And you're handing them to somebody like Norman and he's going to say, well, these are the this is the 18 holes that I want to be associated with. Yeah. And and in this for those in the business who know, like the, the topo was was really like imagine the scale of, you know, it was like a thousand acres and it was on four sheets of paper that were different surveys that didn't really all fit together. And, <laughs> and I kind of scanned them and put them together, tried to make one, one kind of base, kind of work things out. And all you really do is you just, you're just looking for landing areas. Like where can we, you know, where, where can we create a landing area? You can kind of stick T's and greens in you know, pretty severe places, but landing areas require width. And so, you know, like how can we cut this down? But I just remember the first day that we started work there, I had Ray, my guy was out there and he, I said, go survey, you know, after they'd cleared, I go survey from the top of this hill to the top of that hill and give me a dimension because I was afraid we were going to be 10% off. And, you know, our 7,000 yard golf courses were all going to be 6,300 yards, you know, because the, the survey was just, just horrid. But yeah, we had, we had, um, and, and it was constantly changing, but, but so, yeah, so I had, I had gone through and I, and I, you know, routed, it and and given the severity of that terrain, I've always said that you know a lot of courses like PJ West, for instance, which is on a flat piece of land, it's kind of like a pizza, where you have in the center is the clubhouse and you have eighteen slices and then there's you know there's or you know, the point is that that there's none of these holes necessarily intertwine when you're dealing with a flat piece of land and you plan things out, but when you're dealing with a site like this, there are a lot of holes, like portions of one course kind of go through another course to get to the portions of the other course. And it's more like a bowl of spaghetti than a pizza. And so, so what if, what, you know, it's, it wasn't like you just go build this, this course over here because they really had to be built together because the cuts from one course made the fills for the other course. Cause it wasn't like dealing with individual little courses and it was really extreme with the with the the because the what is now the norman course is essentially all valleys that needed substantial fills you know just kind of a imagine a v valley that where it was so it was so narrow at the bottom basically there was room for a, a little motorcycle trail to get you know in and out of the village areas and then just three to one slopes going up either side so these in order to get you know, at, at 50, 60 yards of width or or more, you know, it, it requires a massive amount of fill. And well, those fills have to come from the other areas that get cut and that other area is more likely on another golf course. So, so whereas if, if you did PJ West, you could say, well, we're going to do both. We're going to have five courses. We can get five designers and they can all win, work independently and we'll make sure mm -hmm. they all kind of start and, you know, start and finish at the clubhouse area, but they can go do whatever they want. I mean, 
this it would have been an absolute disaster to have you know five architects trying to figure out how to build five courses at one time on a on a site that was like I said it was like a bowl of spaghetti with and massive cuts and fills you know third, right it, it required so much engineering. Yeah, and you know, and but the, the funny thing is, there was never engin- there was no engineer. I was the engineer, you know. I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't like there was an engineer involved stamping plans, and we were ju- we were just out just going at it. And so it was like the ultimate in the field design build. You kind of had an idea of the landscape, but you were out there with with your you know seven hundred excavators just finding land yeah and, finding and, you know, and going at a breakneck pace too. I just you know, and, and on top of that, there's obviously there's a lot of water coming through too. So, you know, I think there's something like 36 bridge crossings, you know, some of them, of, you know, significance in size with pipes and, you know, like sometimes you know, five, one meter pipes below it or something. And, uh, you know, I, there was so much going on on a daily basis, you know, a feature like that, if you were building any golf course anywhere today, I guarantee you're going to, you're going to, you're going to spend a couple hours, you know, look, just looking at that, how that bridge is working. And we would just kind of drive by each one, kind of slow down just a little bit and kind of look over and see, if, does that, ah, it looks okay, let's move on. Because you kind of had bigger <laughs> battles to, you know, to fight. Because you're talking about just massive cuts and fills and, and just the coordination of, 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 you know, how dirt kind of went from one place to, to another. It was pretty, it was pretty crazy. But yeah, really no, um, you know, we just deal directly with, with the engineer. You'd work all day, they'd have site meetings, you know, kind of at, at night and, uh, and you go back at it the next day, and it was it was it was pretty wild. That's just it's hard to to fathom to fathom all. Well, of that. you know, and the funny thing is, you know, like like people will say, like, okay, so you know, Bill Coor, you know, he spent you know seven days walking the site, and when he builds, you know, he does course, he doesn't really have plans; he just kind of finds in the field. Well, on one hand, it, it kind of was that way because we we had to have a plan because you can't direct two thousand piece, you know. 700, you got to tell 750 excavators where to go cut and how much to cut. So you need a plan, you know, a big picture plan that has everything laid out so that you can survey and you make sure everything fits and works and you make sure the dirt move works. But, but once the, once the dirt move was kind of in place, then I took on that same role where I didn't, you know, I didn't have plans with me because from that point forward, once we started kind of manhandling the, the site into something that resembled golf holes, then you just go wave your arms around. And, you know, it wasn't like we were doing, we're building to a plan. I mean, you built to a plan to the extent that you had to manhandle the site, but once everything kind of resembled a golf hole from that point forward, generally from that point forward, we did, we used that same method where it was just like, okay, now, now that we've got it resembling a golf hole, what fits? Because no matter what you intend, when you're moving that kind of dirt, you're, it's never going to come out anywhere near, you know, you can't go out there and shoot grades and say, well, the design grades a 52, this is a 51. You need to fill another meter. No, it's like, no, this is good. Let's move. Let's go. And so, you know, you just, you just have to react to what's given, what, what you have on site. So on one hand, it, it, we, we, we had to certainly had to go in there and engineer something, but once it started to resemble something, then you react the same way you would if you, someone said, here's, here's Bannon Dunes, here's, here's, you know, w- w- whatever. So you've got, there's twelve. There are twelve courses at Mission Hills, Senjin, and Dongguan, and then there are ten courses that you did all the ten at uh, Mission Hills Haiku. Yeah, and, 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 yeah, and Hainan. At what point? 
and you built those those all simultaneously, basically. Yeah, we, well, basically, we started and just never stopped. And I think we built ten in eighteen months. Yeah. I, at, at what point in this process are you? I know you just described it's mostly tactical. You're just trying to find golf holes. You're trying to find well, out there, how to no, get them well, onto like the land. That, that was a different. That was that was okay. The, the side and hike of it's all a lava bed and flat as far as you know topo goes there was there was undulation there were certainly some ups and downs and there were some areas had some nice trees but for the most part you know nothing like hills you know taking down hills the factor there was and and the project is huge the project is seven miles long average of about one and a half two miles wide or so but it's just a massive massive project and so we started at the top and worked our way down so i so i planned the whole thing out and you know, that one, the courses don't so much intertwine like they do in, in Senja and Dongguan. So so that's more like the pizza analogy. And so mm -hmm. there, because it was all lava rock, we would take scrape off the loose lava rock and we use that to build walls and different things, whether on the golf course or in the, in the development areas. But And then you're left with that hard rock. And it still had some nice movement to it at times, especially Blackstone. But then what we did is we went – about 20 miles away, and we bought a hill, the land that basically was just a big hill of good material. Bought a hill? <laughs> yeah, and they whittled that thing down. We'll, we'll take that one over there. <laughs> yeah, and what they did is they just took that, and we used that good dirt and trucked it in. Same thing, 24 hours a day, a heap of you know trucks all backed up, and uh, capped it. So anywhere you see turf, and we left a lot of you know these open lava areas and wetland areas and um, – and, you know, there were there's some de decent treat areas at times, Blackstone for sure. Blackstone had a little more elevation change, but um, we just would bring, we brought that, we would truck in all day, every day. And wherever, you know, I'd had to go out there and kind of walk and figure out, you know, turf lines and or, you know, kind of limits of, of capping. And so we would cap it. So anywhere you see any kind of turf, there's a meter of clay and then we would sand cap on top of that. And so we did that. You know, starting at Blackstone, and then so the so the dirt, yeah, the dirt came from the north, west came trucked in to cap everything, and then the sand source came from further down south where the where the river kind of hit, which was say you know fifteen miles, twenty miles to the south. So we would bring in the clay and then bring the sand in. Well, then what I found out is as we as we got further into the job, the final course, the tenth course, which is called Shadow Dunes. I found out that it cost more to bring the clay to 10 miles further down the site than it was to just to bring sand from the river. And so I said to Ken, I said, you know, and we're trying to make different looks and, you know, you don't want 10 of the same thing. You know, we're trying to make different kind of styles, so to speak, of golf courses. And so I said, why don't we just, you know, we're at the beach. We're near the beach. We're not at the beach. If people want to come here, to go. I said, well, let's, let's build Sand dunes. Let's build a sand dunes course. You know, the sand's cheaper. Let's just build a sand dunes course and just cover all this lava rock and sand, not see any rock. All you see is sand and, you know, build a sand dunes course. And it, Ken's great. He's thought about it for like a couple seconds and he goes, good idea. Confirmed. And that was it. That was the end of discussion. I mean, never had another discussion about it. And so we built, to me, I think it's the, I think it's, it's my favorite of the 10 there. It's, it's the one that doesn't get as much play because it's, it's, you know, it's way down at the end. 
um, everybody focuses. Yeah, I was going to ask. I was going to ask you about that because that looks like the most interesting course, that, from what you can tell, just from pictures and, yeah. and areas. Yeah, it's really fun. It's it's short and I call it sporty. You know, it's a sporty. It's it's a par seventy of about sixty two hundred yards, and technically it's a par sixty eight. You know, like Tom's doing his um, sixty par sixty eight yeah. thing now at um at yeah at Sand Valley. It's called Sedge Valley. Sand Valley. You know, and I tell you, you know, in Asia, tr- building a course. At that period of time in Asia, if you weren't par 72, they'd look at it like, like, like you got a hole in your head. So I said, no, 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 par 70 is fine. So actually a couple of them par 70s. But that one is a short and sporty par 70. Technically, it's a par 68 because two of the fives really, if you wanted to put today's standards to them, you'd, you'd probably call them you know, long par four. So it kind of is that, that course, but I think it's, I think it's, it's visually, it's probably one of the more interesting ones and it's fun to play really super wild. Right. So why it's a wall to wall fairway, no rough going right into sand transition areas, big dunes and 11,000 average. The greens are average 11,000 square feet. Yeah. Super wild. And cause I knew, and I told Comstown, I said, I don't want these greens. Don't let these things run more than eight. I mean, these are intended to be, I mean, we're going to have slow greens, So we're just going to put a heap of, sloping these things so it's kind of fun it's one of those you know there's a lot of like bold areas it's not like they're crowned they're you know like a pioneer thing they're more like a lot of areas of different bowls so you know if if you're hitting it good you can have a lot of birdie putts within five feet because the ball kind of rolls to the hole mm-hmm. and at the same time if you miss greens all you gotta do is kind of feed it towards that bowl and it kind of wants to feed towards the hole so it's um you know i don't I'll say it's a total pushover but it's a fun course to play and uh and in it's it's uh, it's it's by far I think visually very and it's one of the more interesting I think in, in that whole China market you know there there's some courses since that time that have come on that have that more of a that that kind of a look but at the time that that was done that was really the only thing I think in China that it really looked much like that. So uh, as we've been saying, like so much so much of the Mission Hills projects at at uh, all three sites were you know ninety percent focus on just construction, just finding ways to get it built. But you, you're also developing golf concepts and strategies and aesthetic looks for multiple courses at the same time. How how difficult was that? to, Or maybe it wasn't well, difficult, okay. but what so was I, the process like? Because to me, it's like asking a, somebody like Corin Crenshaw build two courses a year. I mean, it would take them a decade to get up to that volume that you're doing all at once. It'd be like asking a novelist to write 10 novels all at the same time and have them all be interesting and different. How did you approach that? <laughs> well, here's, okay, here's the funny story is, okay, so when, before we did Mission Hills, Heiko on Hainan, Hainan Island is their, like, their Hawaii, right? Yeah. And, and so actually Lee and I, 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 I knew about Hainan, I'd been there, checked it out, but I would always tell the chairman, I said, we should do, we should do a project in Heinen because that's, that's, you know, sandy sites and blah, 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 blah. And he's, oh, because Heinen had this history where there was a big development push about 20 years prior and it, everybody just got killed and it went under and there's empty carcasses of buildings all over the island, at least it used to be. There was a boom and it went totally bust. And then what happened is a lot of the powers that be kind of gobbled up the best land. So, but then, so the chairman was like, yeah, yeah, but it's, it's not the right time. It's not the right time. So finally he decided we're going to do a project there. So we went down and you meet with all the, that's how it works. And, you know, in the States, you go buy land from Joe Smith. He owns this section of land you buy from him, but there you deal with the local governments, right? Because they own the land. So we got in this bus with the feng shui master and over the course of about a week or two, 
we drove all over that island looking for the looking for properties. And obviously, there are a lot of great oceanfront properties, but you know, he didn't want to build a golf course or two golf courses. He wanted to build a massive complex, even bigger than Sengen. And get this: so he wanted to build thirty-six not holes courses, thirty-six courses at one time, and just not. And so, what people don't know is you can look at Mission Hills Hainan today. And you can see on Google Earth, you can see the 10 course complex. But when we first got started, there was, we had 36 holes, 36 courses, not holes, 36 courses planned out on different properties, not totally contiguous, but, but somewhat connected. So there was Mission Hills, we called it Mission Hills North, which is the, what it is today, the Heiko project. That was North. Then there was one we called it, I think we called it Mid- mid valley or some mid something and then the south and the south so there was a total of 36 courses we actually if you go to history on google earth if you go back you can actually see the remnants we actually finished two there was on mission hill south there were 12 maybe more i think it was like 12 courses there so we we had them all planned out and one was going to be like Pine Valley, one was a National Golf Links, one was an Augusta, one was a this, one was a that kind of a thing. And we actually finished two of them. And you can go to Google Earth and they're still there if you go back in history. But, uh-huh. but that project, um, then there, there, there was a big snafu about like who had the land. And, and you know, so, we, so they said, listen, we're going we're gonna to move all the equipment up and finish up the north. And that project, that portion of the project has never ever came to be but we actually had a we had we had on top of the 10 that we did you know finish we had a bunch of other courses all going but you know to get to your point about how you make them different i had um we we uh had this big war room table and i had you know the guys one of the guys in the office who's who's ryan farrow who's who's he, he's working with bill and ben Bill and uh, yeah, he's Bill a very Gill talented shaper. Gill and yeah, he's he's still and he's 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 awesome. So you know, Ryan and I, largely, we had a big huge table in the in the in the office, and we would go through magazines, and you know, just often or whatever, wherever we could find golf photos, and we'd start categorizing categorizing you know styles, of course, and because we had to come up with like, how do you come up with thirty six different, you know, styles. Of golf courses, and if and it's not that hard if you start, you know, if 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 you start talking about the difference between you know a parkland course and something really rugged and all the things in between and Desmond Muirhead's you know iconic looking things and you can go you know <laughs> you can start kind of throwing piles of photos and saying you know this is this and this and this and now it's hard to come up thirty six totally different but you can come up but then start. Then you start talking about different landscape themes and different bunker styles and different this and different that. And, you know, everything from a from a catch, you know, catch basin laden peat dye looking thing with railroad ties all over the place to something that is all surface flowed and natural and rugged and transitional. And and, you know, it's not that hard. And what you do is you create a game plan and you have this game plan. And in dealing, you know, the, the, the funny thing, the odd thing, and I still talk about this with my psych guy, one of my favorite guys, Joey Cagle who's in Vietnam right now, he remembers back then where, you know, we would be, we would have, say, five different courses under construction 
that had five different themes. So I would be with a, you know, with a shaper with Joey, who was in charge of all the shaping. And we're on a certain course. And I go, okay, this course, we want no catch bases, no drainage. It's all surface flow. It's transitional. It's this, is this, this. And then we'd go over to this other one. Okay, forget everything I just told you over there because we're doing – you know, this is going to be this, 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 and this. And we go to another site. Okay, this is totally different. And, you know, and he, so he had to keep all those different, you know, all those different flavors, all those different menu items, all kind of, you know, separated in his mind as how to direct the shapers, you know, from there too. So it was, um, it was, it was, it was, it, you, you just, I always kind of use the term playbook. And the playbook is like, here's what we're trying to do. And it's, it's, it's what we want to do and what we don't want to do. And it's telling, telling, telling them what you don't want to do is as important as, as what you want to do. At some, some point in this evolutionary process of how these courses come into being, are you having to consider the type of player that's going to be habitating these golf courses and, and keeping them afloat or the ownership? Like what are the, what are the demands of the Chinese market or the owners that – that you have to consider what are they asking of you um other than just give us 36 courses right now yeah um at, at, i don't i don't know if there would ever i i think that going back to the early certainly mission hills in the early days you know the chairman just wanted everything to be you know as 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 good a quality as it could be now, at the same time, I, you know, having had worked with them and in the past, you know, I do when it comes time, it's kind of strange. It's it's during the construction process, there there isn't a lot of nowhere near the kind, same kind of attention you get on doing a job here where there's a lot of talk about not spending this money or, or not, you know, we'll spend this, not do this, we'll do this, like not do this, not do, you know, that happens a lot more here. That doesn't happen there. They so they like, but what what does get. Um, get discussed a lot is when it gets handed off and operations start taking over, they come, they, they, they become really budget conscious. So I learned early, early on a few things. Uh, and, and part of that was to not make maintenance intensive courses because the concern would be that, you know, the memo comes out where we, we're cutting our maintenance budget by 15% and we're only going to do this, this, this. And, and so, you know, it behooved me to not give, hand them something that was so expensive to maintain that you knew it was never going to really look right. And uh, so so I would say that even, you know, I, I don't like in all of those courses, I don't think you know, I don't think you'd find many where you say, wow, this is really moundy or really a lot of handwork involved. You know, I, I think early on, you know, I was trying to like, how do you strive to get the most, like the best course with the most visuals without having to, to impose, you know, a really, really difficult maintenance practice and a, a large cost involved with ongoing maintenance and try to stick to, to, even though labor's cheap and plentiful and, you know, all that, but you don't want to create a golf course where there's a hundred people out fly mowing all day. You know, if you can, if you can gang mow everything. And now it's even got to the point where, you know, in Vietnam, I did the last things at Vietnam, you know, I, I don't even have the bunker face. Everything is, it's all fairway cut, all gang mowed. And even all the bunker faces are just in this native grass that you don't even, you don't even mow. And they think it's the greatest thing because, you know, all they do is they, they just send a mower around. So I got into the, I got into the desire for less maintenance. And this is certainly coming out of, you know, if I go, I think back to those PGS, PJ West years, 
where the maintenance guys or the operation guys that I would deal with, they say they did, oh, God, these Nicholas courses, all these chocolate drop mounds and all this handwork and I hate this. And blah. and so and I was like, well, you know, I don't know why we would need to do that anyway. So how can we do how can we send something that has some punch but doesn't have to rely on that much that much effort? And so, so I, I think it was some, to me, it was somewhat kind of a self-imposed. It was, it was never anybody saying, you know, these courses are too difficult to maintain. You need to lighten up. It was just more of a self-imposed thing where it behooved me to do something that was easier to maintain so that turf conditions could be as good as possible because always it was going to be a fight on, you know, whatever the case, whether it's, it's bringing in the, you know, proper fertilizers or, you know, trying to combat overwatering or whatever it does. So like that, the easier it was to maintain, I just knew that the course was going to, to look and play a whole lot better. So I was always kind of focusing on, on, uh, how to create playability and, you know, create a, de, you know, a, a demanding enough golf course and create as much visuals, but not impose a whole lot of hardened, uh, maintenance practice along with it. You said in an interview I read maybe six, seven years ago, probably about the time the Mission Hills courses are opening, that the average Chinese player, the golfer there, really has a certain image of golf in their mind, and it's driven probably by like Augusta National. So it's a very pristine, very landscaped, very ordered, beautiful kind of golf course. Like that's the ideal. Uh, So much of the American golf experience and architectural trends and design desires and maybe Australians, you know, UK too, have been going the opposite direction, away from that Augusta aesthetic and more toward, as we said earlier in our conversation, minimalism or naturalism or lower inputs and a a less polished look. Has that caught up to the Asian market at all, or is it still the desire still driven by a very pristine amusement park level experience? Um, For sure it's caught up. I mean, there are, what there are is there are there are now there weren't necessarily 20 plus years ago there are influencers people in and around the golf business who in the early days all they really knew was what was in front of them in in China not not many players really you know gravitated outside the country and so what you what 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 you saw was a lot of the same thing and, and it was really hard to push the envelope. And it, you're also, you got to understand too, is when you're dealing with Southeast Asia, you're not going to go create courses with fescues and wispy conditions. You know, it's, it's, you know, it rains like mad and it's a jungle. And so it, that dictates a lot of what goes on there. You can't impose, you can't go and and, and say, you know, I'm, I'm built at this, sand duny fescue laden you know golf course that looks like scotland you know when it rains like it does there and you're dealing with weeds and whatnot so that dictates a lot of it but for sure there are these influencers early on who who pushed owners towards you know yeah we want we want augusta we don't want whatever and but i think that has changed and and it certainly it changes along with the sites and i and i i i think that there it's unfortunate that China's had this slowdown because I think what you'd see is a, a lot more courses that get built along the lines of what you see going on in other places. And you would also see uh, the renovation of poorly designed but well-located courses that kind of need a facelift. And they would probably be, take on a little bit more of a natural 
natural look. But having said that, I, you know, I think there still is there's plenty of demand for the for the pretty the pretty golf course and uh, you know but, but you know whatever I, that's fine you know the, i think that the wider variety of of the looks you have you know you don't want everything to look the same either so but there's certainly i think there's in in all of asia there's there certainly has been more acceptance it's certainly the acceptance has hit how much it's been how much of that's turned into demand? That would be, I guess, a, a, another question. Like, it's one thing for golfers to accept a, you know, more, whatever you want to call it, rugged, natural look. Whether they're demanding it, I don't know. And I, I think that most most owners probably are, are afraid to go too far down that path. I've always I've been doing things like I, I call them kind of a kind of a cleaned up rugged look you know it's like how can we get how can we get something that's transitional and somewhat rugged but still where you are maintained try to try to keep things a little on the cleaner side but let the let the let the uh, you know the frame so to speak take on a little more of a rugged look as opposed to the to the really parklandy look Right. So you've worked throughout China, not just at Mission Hills, but other projects. You've worked in Thailand, Burma. You've got some really interesting looking projects going on in Vietnam right now. What's the strangest experience you've had working in Asia or Southeast Asia? You're in some pretty interesting environments there. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It's uh, I could go on and on, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Um. I don't know what the strangest would be, but, but it's not like Palm Springs. You know, I, I think that, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you're, um, you don't have, I, I think there's a, the, the one thing that kind of seems to unify from, from job to job is even if you have an owner who's an avid golfer, they, they, they don't get involved a whole lot. And as opposed to if you're working for Mike Kaiser, you know, I would imagine Mike Kaiser, you discuss every blade of grass, you know, and it, that doesn't happen over there. And in fact, a lot of owners, you know, they don't want to get their shoes dirty. So they, they, you would never even see them out on site during construction. And that wouldn't be the case with a lot of owners in, in the Western world. So, so on one hand, you, you, I just wrote an article the other day, they were asking about that, basically that question about amount of freedom and you get a lot of freedom. The problem that we, I, and it was, it was, it came across a lot. And in fact, you know, Bill ran into this when he was doing Schengen Bay is, is they'll change the property on you. And a lot of times during construction and, you know, the land you thought you had, you no longer have. So you have to, you got to stay in on your toes a lot of times and reshuffle. So, so the impact of, of the owner isn't so much about meddling with the design, but, but promising this is what land you have. And then you find out you don't have that. And, and sometimes that can be, you know, a bit of a, you know, a train wreck, but sometimes not. Sometimes so when you come and do projects in the U.S., is it does it feel like you're, you know, you're working under under like warden conditions? You know, you're on the chain gang with all the regulations and oversight and owners compared to your projects in Asia. Yeah, not you know, I got it. Not so much. Um, I haven't dealt with, you know, like the really severe permitting process in the u.s in, in a long time but you know it is kind of tough dealing with committees you know if you're dealing with I, you know occasionally i get involved with a remodel kind of a thing and, and you know where you have committees and and that's yeah that's where every blade of grass is discussed and 
And uh, yeah, it's an entirely different different um, experience than than doing work. I, I you know I really prefer to work from scratch um, on new sites where you kind of you where you have freedoms to to kind of do what you want and not not have too much oversight. Not that not that I'm a you know my way or the highway kind of you know thing. I don't slam my foot down, and if I got to deal with committees, you know it's their course and they want to play it you know the way they want to play it. That's fine. You know, I'll voice my opinion and try to drive a decision, but, but, um, I, it's, it's, it's always just more fun to, to just, uh, you know, to, to kind of do what you want. I asked you a little while ago if it was a difficult decision for you and Lee to decide to really get in full on the Asian market. And I, I know the answer is you said it wasn't difficult. It must have been, I mean, you've had now these experiences building golf courses in, in China, especially that most architects will never get. I mean, to, to be able to do, uh, you know, s- 10 courses basically at a time. And um, did I did I just see that you, in Vietnam, you've got another potential 10-course project coming up? I mean, if these yeah, are, planned, these are abnormal in the architecture world. <laughs> it's planned for 10. We've, we've got one is open, one is grassed and about to open. Uh, we're supposed to start the third one. Awesome property. I've, I've referred to, I've always referred to it as, um, kind of like it's kind of Pine Valley at the beach, you know. It's it's all big sand and massive sand dunes. Wow. Uh, Tom actually Doak was there er, earlier in the year, and you know, I took him. The first two are a little bit more on the on the flatter, actually the the worst part of the property, but it's the area more towards the beach. But as as you gravitate, as you move back into the project, the dunes are massive, and uh, you know, I, I said I I referred to it, you know this has the potential to be kind of the stream song of Asia is if we ever move into these bigger bigger dunes. Which, by the way, as as you know, the way it's planned right now, as we get away from from the beach, it's these are one hundred percent just pure core golf courses too, and just crazy, 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 awesome site. All sand, all white sand, plenty of water. I mean, it's 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 and, and it's year round golf. So, yeah, that's 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 um, and and you have so much freedom there, right? You have so much freedom to to build a golf course that that you envision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you must feel like just thinking back on these last 20 years, you must feel like a kid in a candy store. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's just, you know, I, I get, you know, people ask, how do you come up with like, well, how do you come up with different ideas? I don't, you know, I I don't know. It's it's, But I think part of it is you just kind of stick to your guns and you, and you, and you, I'm, I'm always trying to kind of push the envelope of doing something, you know, kind of unique and different and. Cause I just, I, you know, the, it's a, it's a business where I, I, I tell owners if, you know, if you go do the same thing that everybody else has, I, I you know, you, you gotta be a little bit different. It doesn't mean you have to be totally wacky crazy, but you know, there's room for that too. You know, in Mission Hills, you know, a lot, they got a lot of attention cause we were going to do the, you know, the icon course with the noodle bowl and all that kind of stuff. But you know, if you've got 10. Whatever happened plus, to that? Well, it, it was going to start there. We started, we did one hole. And then what happened is they got involved with another project in Nanine, which is Weston. It was going to be, it was actually, they were working with another owner, but they're branding it, so to speak. And it was, it would have been a perfect site for that. And that one ran into the whole moratorium, the band, you know, whole band. So it, we were there, we were, we had a plans all in place and ready to go and move it to there. And it just stopped. But, you know, it's funny, it's, it gets panned by a lot of people like, you know, this is crazy, wacky, whatever. But I've talked to a bunch of operators and they're like, oh, man, if I had this, they'd be over it all day, you know. 
why t- why talk on, on this podcast all the time about where architecture is right now and and what the future is and many of the guests many architects all agree that we've kind of gotten into this area where it's we're kind of stalled out right now it's a great place to be and if you never left where you know at least what american architects are doing right now would be great but it is an art form and where do we go from here and there's sort of this desire to see what's next what's the next trend or how can we take where we've gotten and expand on it and the problem is in the united states there are so few opportunities for architects to to do something great and you have young architects like ryan farrow for instance who probably is deserving and would love to have a project but there just aren't many opportunities to see what these young guys can do is asia the place where we can might start to see or have been seeing some artistic movement or different expressions like some of the think projects that you've been working on well the the beauty of asia is well there's, there's a there's a, a lot of issues one is just how you do a project like if you and I wanted to go do a project in Scottsdale, Arizona, the first thing we had to do is go buy land. We just blew our first $20 million buying land. And now we're like, where do we go get the land to build the golf course, right? Because you just spend it all on the land. There, you make a deal with the local government who owns the land, and they throw the land into the deal. So your first $20 million or whatever it is goes into producing the product. So that system alone means that the the amount of money that goes in to kind of create the product, whether it's the golf or the you know infrastructure, so you can you can go in, and then the other and then the the other really 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 important thing there in 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 Asia is the cost to operate, whether it's maintenance of the course or operation of the club, is substantially less than it was say in the U.S. You know where where you're building golf courses for the same amount of money or maybe you know eighty percent of the money. You're operating them for twenty percent of the money. You know, it's, it's you can. There are courses that have three hundred thousand dollar, you know, operation budgets. So you can beat the curve, so to speak. You can be ahead of the curve. You can be way ahead of your. If you want forty thousand rounds a year and it takes ten years to get there, it's not the end of the world. It would kill you. You'd hemorrhage to death in Scottsdale, but you can you can get by. And these sites, and you and your buddies you know, play and you have a handful of members and, and you know, you kind of, you kind of work your way down the road. So, so the point is that courses can get built kind of ahead of the curve. And on top of that, you come across a lot better sites. And, uh, I think that there's a lot greater opportunity to, uh, to create, to create, um, to create a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a different, a different kind of an, an environment theme, whatever it is. And, and, and I, I think the other part of it is I don't think that there's much of a preconceived idea of what, what something has to be there as there is here where, where people are much more likely to tell you what is right and wrong. Yeah, you touched on, on sites, and, and we'll wrap it up here in a minute, Brian. It looks like things are starting to kind of go off go off on your end. But you mentioned, you know, sites. It was funny, 20 years ago, the conventional wisdom in America was that there aren't any good golf sites left. And then we start to see sites around the world. And heck, there weren't. we hadn't even exhausted great golf sites in the United States. There turns out there are some still some really, truly amazing sites, but they're all around the world now. What is the possible? What do you see out there? You see a lot more than anybody else, probably. I mean, what's the potential for amazing, you know, landscape altering golf around the world that you've come across? Oh, it's it's, you know, there's there are places that you come across and you say this looks like Cypress Point, 
this looks like Pebble Beach. This looks like, you know, yeah, uh, it's it's a big world. And 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 even in these, you know, if, even if you look at China, for instance, you know, China's one and a half million people, but they basically live all on top of each other along the eastern seaboard. You know, the overwhelming majority of China is just open, vast open land. So it's not like it's not like China is paved wall to wall with people. It's it's uh, there are a lot of places with really varying terrains and crazy landscapes. You know, you've probably seen the photos of Stone Forest around Kunming. You know, there's mm-hmm. places like that. And, you know, um, lot, lot of great. Obviously, obviously, like Vietnam is nothing but one big long beach from head to toe. So the opportunity for 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 epic golf to continue to be built for years in Vietnam is 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 endless as long as as long as the uh, if if the market is there, you know, which is going to obviously going to be relying upon foreigners. But it um, you know it the great thing about Vietnam, for instance, is it's a year round market. So you do get you know, the rest of Asia that's in the north where there's Japan or Koreans or or in in Euros coming coming in. You know, it's a place that you can come to year round. So I think Vietnam has huge potential on the world stage and I think and actually they're developing players. You know, the courses in Hanoi and and around Ho Chi Minh are actually filled with a lot of Vietnamese. So they're creating a market there too. So uh yeah, I, I think, you know, the the issues with the US is is even if there are great sites available, you run into a myriad of, of environmental problems and approval processes, let alone there being a market and the money to go back and go, go in and do something. So, so I just, I just see, I think that the, the, the chances for things happening in, in, you know, outside the U S are, uh, uh, you know, just it's night and day. It's when you're, when you're dealing with, with those kind of all those different conditions. Right. What happened with Dalu Dunes? That was, in, I guess, it was in Mongolia, right? But that looked like an incredible yeah, desert well, dune. Kind of, well, site. you know, it's it is a victim of of you know China, but you know, it's kind of funny. Is is it's outside of Ordos. Ordos is one of their ghost towns. You know, it's the city that was built for forty million people, and there's four hundred thousand people living there, or something. You know, I don't know the numbers, but mm-hmm. you know, something severe like that. You know, there's opera houses and massive buildings and super wide streets. And so it was like a theme park that they built and nobody came to it. Well, you know, so this was or of they- course outside and, and, you know, and it's kind of funny because you, you understand if, if, if you, if you're up to date with kind of why, you know, there's the whole backlash against golf in China, it's, it's a lot of things, but you know, a lot of times things, they weren't just built without permits, but they were built on, you know, if, if you're, if you're, if you're dealing, especially with water, if, if you're dealing, you know, there's a lot of concerns for water quality. So if you have water quality issues, if you take out forests, you're taking out villagers, you're taking out farmland, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why a lot of courses were shut down, converted, whatever. But it's funny, is the ironic thing is Ordos, of all places, this is a piece of land that it was had no villagers, had no farms, had no trees, has no water contamination issues, has... And in fact, it's next to this big city that they're trying to draw people to, to get people there. And on top of that, they're trying, because it's this area of the country where there's all these big dust storms, they're trying to hold down the dust. So it's like, of all the places where you think they'd allow a golf course, 
it would be there because it didn't seem to hit any of the check, you know, the boxes that you check for why you don't want it. And it actually added some why you want it because you're creating something to lure people there and you're holding down the sand. So the fact that that one went away is a real head scratcher for me. That's yeah, kind of a bummer. It looked like an amazing place. Yeah, that was, um, you know, that was certainly the most rugged, natural, um, you know, as far as Chinese courses go at the time, that was cutting edge. And, you know, that's one that Ryan worked on as well when he was, he was with us. And, and, uh, you know, that, that it was, it it was too bad because I think that would have been a big influencer as, as, as courses, more courses were built within the country, people would say, Hey, this, you know, if our concern is about, about the, the, the quality or the, the, how the golf and the environment, so to speak, you know, here's, here's a solution where we can provide the playing service and, and, and not do what's typically done in every other golf course you'd see around China. How often do you get a chance to see other, other contemporaries architecture courses designed by your peers? How often do you get a, either in Asia or the United States? Oh, I'd say pretty often. Um, I, I'll, you know, do a, a U.S. trip every now and then and try to hit the new, you know, the new things. Like I went to Streamsong. Okay, so, so I, I ask Asia, all my yeah, guests a lot around this. Asia, sure. So yeah, uh, the listeners were, are very familiar with this question. What's the best modern car- course you've seen that you're, you have not been affiliated with? Um, Cool. Uh, hard to say because I, you know, I break them down as, as, as what, what you dealt with to begin with, you know, we kind of talked about that earlier cause there's architecture where you find and there's architecture where you create. Um, you know, I, I think that a, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that, that, you know, Bill and Ben are doing is just top notch. They never seem to fail. You know, uh, so many of those are good, and they're and they're so influential. Um, but you know that, that, but but so is Tom, and so is Gil, and and uh, uh, probably um, you know I think those certainly are the kind of courses that you look to, and you say this is the kind of stuff that's going to hold up over time for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if one would stand out saying as the number number one go-to what course then have you enjoyed playing the most uh that wasn't mine yeah oh of recents okay so things i've seen recently so um uh you know cal club up in san francisco Mm -hmm. kyle phillips renovated that that kyle did there yeah that's that's really really strong that would have been a, a recent one um uh, the the stream Gills 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 course was just under construction, so I haven't played that at Stream Song. But the other two there, um, I, you know, I understand all all this all the accolades there. The you know it's funny. I, I at, at Bandon, you know, everybody's always asking how do you break down Bandon, and I I think the best overall course there probably is is Pacific Dunes. But you know, I go to Old McDonald, and it's like wow, this, I wish we could build more courses like this because that's what really people need to be playing as a course along those lines. Which you, you mean just because of the, the, the spaciousness of the golf course? Because of the spaciousness. And I think that that gets ridiculed too much. And certainly in Asia where, where there's almost this desire to, for a lost ball, 
opportunity. You know, it's like I, it's kind of a battle um, where where some of, some of these courses that you know in 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 Vietnam, for instance, that people like or you know golfers I talk to they like, and I think that they don't really they haven't seen a whole lot, so I take that with a grain of salt. But you know, they kind of like these really tight courses where you lose a heap of balls and I, I never have figured that out i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't know what what and i'm i'm so i'm trying to counteract that i'm trying to how do how do i how do you bring those that visual without but still having to try to keep playability in mind and i just think i would just love to see i'm not saying you have to i always use the term there's 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 lose your ball tough and find your ball tough i like find your ball tough golf courses but i don't know why there's so much um love of, of and, and certainly in asia of courses that that bring a lot of you know playability playability issues so i wish i wish that courses would gravitate towards more towards the playability without losing the visuals without losing you know the punch and, and drama drama that you get out of the artistic side of the business but you know ultimately try to focus more on, on playability yeah do you generally have more appreciation for other architects work if they had to, you know, manufacture, like you used your Palm Spring example, manufacture everything from the ground up versus the guys who are given great natural sites and just have to, you know, I don't say just that minimizes it, but are working with a, with a great, you know, sandy site to begin with. Well, um, there's, uh, there's a, uh, I, I think, yeah, one, one, I, I do, I think that, you know, I, I tend to, you try to not judge too much what's going on when, when you do get to site, cause you never really know the backstory. You don't know the history. You don't know what, what they encountered along the way. But, um, and at the same time, you know, I can point to, I don't want to name names. There've been some really great natural sites that someone came in and tried to convert it into something that it didn't want to be. So you have to, you have to give props to to Tom and Bill and Gil and you know, where they go in there and, and and they they don't overcook it, you know, and and you incorporate something that looks real natural because a lot of rather you can point to some really really good natural sites that have been turned into something that where an architect kind of tried to impose his his style, but I think you know I I just always uh, I'm curious of 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 what what the what someone had to work with, you know, from the beginning more. So I think a lot of people react to what's put it right out in front of them. And, and I always kind of give a benefit to the doubt. And I understand why there's sometimes there's odd holes because sometimes what you intend to do and what you're allowed to do, whether it's from the owner or, or from the environmental process, approval process can be two different things. Well, what is, what's one course that you wish more Americans could see that you built one of your courses that you wish more Americans could see? And I'm so I'm assuming it's it's not in the U.S. Um, well, not necessarily. You know, I think that you know we've done a lot of, I would say, you know, a lot of different different looks. You know, you know, I think the course it's probably been the most. Sand Hills probably had the greatest impact of courses in the past whatever it is twenty years. You know, in terms mm-hmm. of, of moving things, and it's a wonderful, wonderful place for sure. And you'd love to have some you know people go and see that. Um, but, you know, and, and as far as it, the kind of within the states, um, you know, Wilderness Club did with, with Nick Faldo in Montana is really good. That's kind of that 
I would call it kind of that cleaned up natural look. It's transitional and rugged, but still, still a little bit more of a cleaned up version. But, you know, the stuff we're doing in Vietnam right, Vietnam right now, this, the, the 10 course thing, Guan Bing, you know, you know, the site is just so fantastic. It's, it's, it's really, 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 really good. And it's, and I think I'd like from a, from a, I just, my own personal point of view and, you know, so much of the stuff we've done in the past has been on less than, like I said, less than spectacular sites. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people who get a lot of attention, you know, are, it, it, it's, and it's certainly they do a great job with it, but the site itself, you know, drives so much of the quality of, of the golf experience. And, and whereas when you, when, you know, we've dealt with so many, so many horrible pro- sites to begin with, it's hard to turn something into something great. You know, we, you can nurse them as close as you can. So now I'm able to work, um, you know, the, in, in Vietnam, the, the, the Guanbing stuff is really good. And then the Guignan, which is, um, a little bit further down the coast. Nicholas did the first job. We did the second one there. And it's, and a lot of people kind of consider it one or two in the country right now. It's I mean, really, really strong. And it, it falls along those lines of what's going on in, in kind of in the world of golf today. But at the same time, you know, I don't have a problem with, with, with things that, uh, that something that even get manufactured, you know, some, sometimes I've had some sites where, you know, a lot of the site might be really pretty good and there's some natural holes. And then, you know, you have to, there's two holes that you have to whack the world and to just to get something to fit in there. And sometimes they, they may, they might turn out to be the most dramatic and the better holes. So it, you know, I think if, if the thought is that the only way you can produce a good golf course is by starting with a good site, I think that's a misconception conception. I think that I think if if you know what you're doing, you can you can you can you can create something as well. And like I said earlier, it's just some 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 sites just need a lot more of a of a grow in and a maturing process. But by then people have moved on to whatever the new flavor is. Right. Yeah. No, I see what you're saying. I feel like there's so much more I want to talk to you about and so many more rabbit holes I want to go down, but I think we should probably wrap it up now. I'll just, I just have this one last question for you. I know you play guitar. Give me your top three guitarists, the guys that you love the most. Guitarists? Like, yes. Lead guitarists? Oh, you know, I'm not a... I'm, or you could do it. You could break it down however you, however you see it, however you like it. Oh, yeah. See, I would, I would, I would probably mark it more on... I'm not, a, I'm not, okay, I don't, I'm not like a lead guitarist. I, 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 I play open. Kind of like a bluesy. Yeah, I'm not, well, I, I like like boozy bluesy, more rhythm, you know, more that kind of state, you know, kind of, you know, coming from a, a rock and rolly kind of thing, but not necessarily yeah. guitar stuff. But I, I just, I'd rather, I put the emphasis more on, on, on lyrics than on, um, on, you know the plane. Then on plane technique, stuff, technique. Yeah. yeah. When it comes, to, I'm, in fact, I've, I'm 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 not a real. I, like I'm not going to sit down and listen to, to you know. There's there's one thing to have a tasty little fill that goes in and, and makes the song work, but there's another thing to listen to, you know, jam on station on on Sirius or something like that. Yeah. Well, who are, who are your guys then? Oh, um, you know, I like a lot of obscure people. You know, I will. You know, I was raised. I had an older brother who listened to Dylan a lot, so obviously, I, you know. Dylan's this epic as far as that goes. The name of her son, Dylan. But okay. not that I do cool. a lot of Dylan stuff, crazily enough. But um, 
I do a, a lot of a lot of things that are kind of that uh, uh, kind of you know I, I don't know I I what I try to do is take something that that people know and kind of t- put my own twist on it like take a rock and roll song that people know but just kind of do it a little, little bit different you know I can do a Jack Johnson version of of a of a of, you know something that's you know a slowed down version of something else. And uh, so, you know, kind of, I don't know, kind of all over the cross, because I have to go down my list of what I do. It's just kind of whatever comes to mind at the time. But out of that, kind of that kind of alt-country-ish, rockish kind of, you know, strain of of uh, people playing, you know, from the past and now, and not so much current stuff. I can't keep up with too much of the current stuff. Right. Have you performed uh, recently? Well, we just played Thanksgiving with all the family on the deck in Carmel. Um, nice. You know, I play. I play. Um, I, I I have a band of guys I play with here in Arizona, but I, I'm gone so much that we we don't get. You know, we try to do that once or twice a month at the most. But I started playing a lot of open mics because it's it's easier to just do it on your own. So in Hanoi, there's like three or four places that go in there and just you know pop in just to just to keep things. You know, stay on top of my chops. So, right, right. But Gotta yeah, keep those fingers. I played, on, I, I played a zillion lounges around you know Asia in my time. You know, sit in with the band or whatever. But it's you no, know, it's just it's. I'd rather, like I said, I'd rather do that than watch, you know, knockoff movies in my room. No, I hear you. I hear. You. Are the audiences? Are they pretty into the music? Can they get into that? Um. Yeah. 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 Brian, thanks for doing this. I know you're so busy. It was great to track you down, and uh, I appreciate you that you set aside some time to do the podcast. You bet. Thanks for having me. Okay, so one of my biggest takeaways from that is the site selection process in China is slightly different than in the U.S. and other parts of the world in that you will travel the countryside with a feng shui master in search of properties that have the appropriate uh, energy forces flowing through them. <laughs> So that, uh, along with the fact that they can build uh, 10 or more courses in 18 months, is a little bit of a departure from the way we do things in the Western world. I wanted to point out one thing. Uh, Brian mentioned a course called the Icon Course, which is going to be built in China. And you probably haven't heard of it because it did not get built, but you can Google that. Um, look up something called, the. he mentioned it, the noodle bowl hole or the chopsticks hole. Uh, they had some kind of competition, I believe, uh, for amateurs to send in design, China-themed design ideas. And, and I think this was one of the winning uh, respondents. But it was it, it, there's a schematic, a computer-generated image of this hole they were going to build. It's literally a green, a par-3 hole with a green shaped like a bowl of noodles with two chopsticks resting on the edge that I, I assume those are bridges that the players walk across to access the green. It's truly bizarre, silly almost. But uh, th- there were other holes like the Great Wall of China holes, a hole with uh, Aztec pyramids as hazards uh, dotted throughout the fairway. Very outlandish thing, something that would never work in America, you'd think. Although uh, Brian said that there were many other you know, operators that came up and told him that if they ever built it, there'd be a line out the door to play it. And who knows with Top Golf now, maybe maybe that's is the way to go. I'm completely wrong about this. Also, in the show notes page, uh, I want I put a link to Ryan Farrow's website, and on that website there are pictures of the defunct, now defunct Dalu Dunes course in Mongolia that we spoke about. Really nice, 
beautiful rolling sandy desert site with some really cool golf holes and features there. So if you want to take a look at some of that, but what Brian and Ryan were creating there that doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately, you can click on that link. But I thought that the whole conversation, especially the second half of the conversation when we got into his work in, in Southeast Asia and China, was just fascinating. Could you imagine the ability or even the proposal to build 36 courses or a 36-hole complex uh, it, it, you know, almost simultaneously you know, from the ground up? It just blows your mind about the possibilities. And how do you even stay on top of that? Like, How can you ensure quality control? How is that possible? I mean, I guess if you're in China, you have 2,000 pieces of equipment at your disposal and, and labor and everything, but it just blows the mind. The only thing I can think of that's comparable to that ever done in America was the construction of the Robert Trent Jones Trail Golf Courses in Alabama. And I think they started with four different sites with 36 holes on each site uh, and they built those at once and then they kind of staggered in the next two or three properties after that uh, that in itself was the accomplishment there was hard to fathom but it's just next level stuff in china and the projects at, at mission hills and elsewhere that that brian's been working on and it is interesting to think about the role that, that China and, and the Southeast Asian countries might play in the future of golf course design. We talk about it all the time. There are so few opportunities in the Western world, and especially in the United States, for golf course development and the idea and the development of artistic ideas as they pertain to golf course architecture. Uh, and, and we haven't really been focused on innovation. We're in an age of great sandy sites and, and wonderful sites when they do come up. But if we're really interested in, in where architecture and ideas and creation and artistry can come from, it, it might be Asia. We might have to, you know, we get locked into an American-centric thought process. And, and yet the creative opportunity in Southeast Asia and China is unbelievable. I mean, just think about, Brian touched on it, but just in Vietnam alone, there are so many great oceanside, sandy, dunesy sites that could be developed. So it, it might behoove us as as writers and thinkers and, and audiences and golfers to kind of step outside of our Western world thinking and, and kind of turn our attention to Asia and China and maybe give a little more credence to what's being done over there potentially a lot of opportunity for world-class golf in Southeast Asia. So thanks to Brian Curley for those stories, for helping illuminate at least my perspective on what's happening in Asia and Southeast Asia. Appreciate him coming on. Thanks to you for listening. We'll wrap this up. Don't forget, give me a follow on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. Hit me up on iTunes with a star rating. Once again, I appreciate that. Thanks to the Sundogs. Thanks to you for listening. And until next time, adios. Adios.